0: This is Your Kick Ass Life Podcast, episode number 118 with guest Amy Pearson. All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to your kickasslife.com forward slash one eighteen.
1: This is the Your Kick Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass.
0: And here's your host the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. And as always, I'm so excited that you're here and I'm so excited to tell you about today's guest and get into the topic. But before we get into it, I just wanted to give you a heads up about a special series I'm rolling out for the podcast that starts the last week of September. So you'll still get your regular episode every Wednesday, but for 10 weeks, starting on September 27th, I'm rolling out episodes on sobriety and recovery. So again, this is in addition to our regularly scheduled Wednesday episodes, you're going to get. Another episode every Tuesday. So these episodes are for anyone who has gotten sober, who struggles with an addiction, more specifically with alcoholism, who's thinking they might have a problem with drinking, but aren't sure, or even none of those things are you, but maybe you want a better understanding of what it's like for someone you care about who's in that position so you can better support them. So if you're sure you don't want to miss those episodes, you can get on my email list and get those delivered to your inbox by simply texting the word KICKASS, that's all one word, to 444-999. Again, that's the word KICKASS to four four 999 I'll be interviewing all kinds of people on the topic and I can't wait to share it with you. And switching gears a little bit, I wanted to give you a quick kind of teaser snippet of what you will be hearing next week to get you excited and make sure that you tune in to that episode. So here you go. Because essentially when you're not doing any of the work, you're saying like, that sounds good, but probably later or for someone else. And again, that might come back to you not being ready. And I think that you are the one who understands that either you're using that as a cop-out or you really, truly aren't ready. And I'll be honest with you. I think that the people that aren't ready are the people that don't know they're not ready. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that unconscious place of being where you just literally, and I hate using that word, but you literally aren't there yet. (laughs) You're just not in that place where you can actually do the work and you don't know that you're not. But the people who are consciously thinking to themselves, I'm just not ready to do that work. I kind of call bullshit on that because I think that you might be ready. I think that you might just be afraid. I think that the thought of doing the work is just so incredibly painful and daunting, but just check yourself, check yourself before you wreck yourself in that situation. So stay tuned for that episode, which comes out next Wednesday. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today, Amy Pearson. Today's guest, Amy Pearson, she's a repeat guest. She's my friend and colleague and the founder of livebrazen.com. She is a master certified Martha Beck life coach, a coach mentor, and instructor for Martha Beck's life coach training. She's a teacher, coach, writer, and speaker, a formal approval addict with the occasional relapse. She's now addicted to success. Her mission is nothing short of world peace by empowering every heart centered entrepreneur to magnify their tribe, make great money, and an impact while doing their unique thing in the world. She is a gifted courage infuser who helps entrepreneurs embrace the discomfort zone. I love that. In honor of their true work in the world. So without further ado, here is Amy. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. And I am joined here for the second time, part two with Miss Amy Pearson. Thank you for coming on, Amy. Hey, thanks for having me. It's your second time. And we will link back to the other podcast episode that we did together. It's already been more than two years since you've been on. It feels like, you know, it feels like it's been like maybe like a month or something. I know time. Right. I know. (laughs) But you are the queen of talking about approval addiction. And that's where I want to start with you. So we talked a lot about that in the other episode we did together. But for anyone that may have missed it, how would someone know that they struggle here? Well, it is a tricky one, right? Because
1: Unlike other addictions where there are really clear negative consequences that show up pretty quickly. So, for example, you know, if you drink too much, there's hangover. If you smoke, you smell bad. If you shop too much, you've got debt. Mm -hmm. STDs if you're sleeping around. But with approval issues and approval addiction, which I do see it as addiction, so a habitual thing that we do despite negative consequences. Uh But again, it's tricky because a lot of times when you are addicted to trying to control how other people see you and think about you and respond to you, usually what happens is you get praise (laughs) or Mm -hmm. at the very least you're not rocking the boat. So this is kind of why I see myself as someone who's really on an awareness raising crusade. And so what happens though, when you are spending your time sort of obsessed with whether or not you're being validated or on the other side of that coin, whether or not someone is going to judge you or leave you out or reject you, what happens is you end up creating a life that doesn't fit you. Mm -hmm. And so you end up surrounding yourself with people that don't get you, or you end up working in a job where, you know, you feel like you're swimming upstream. And this is,
0: by the way, why a lot of us feel like a fraud is because, you know, we're acting like a fraud in our lives. Oh, yeah. So let me me back up a little bit, because maybe I should have started here. So Can you explain to people what is the difference between, because when I wrote my book, I did a chapter about people-pleasing and approval addiction, because I think that there is a distinction between Mm -hmm. the two. So how would you explain the two? I think
1: that people-pleasing is one way that it manifests. Yes. But I think that there's a deeper issue in the, you know, like I really see that a lot of the stuff that we struggle with, if we really got down to it, if we really dug deep enough, it has to do with this fear of isolation of a fear of social exclusion Mm -hmm. and that's because you know we survive traditionally it is a very primal need like if you look at maslow's hierarchy mm -hmm. of needs like feeling safe
0: Mm
1: -hmm. is right there just above like needing to drink water Right. right like and so like if we're feeling left out if we're feeling like someone's rejecting us we don't feel safe and we don't feel good enough. If we're not being validated, we don't feel safe. And so it will show up in all kinds of ways. So it can show up as people pleasing. It can show up as sort of being that stereotypical doormat, mm-hmm. but sometimes it can even look like the opposite. So I've created a personality quiz where you could learn what your approval seeking personality type is. And one of the types is a hater and the hater is someone who would sort of proactively reject before they got rejected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are different ways that it could show up. Like I am married to a chameleon (laughs) and, you know, like the chameleon is great at like sort of blending in to their environment. And they might even pick up like, you know, sound like someone in their social group or, and, and, you know, there's, there's good and bad about all this. It's not to say that you're wrong or you're broken or you're damaged. My husband is a perfect example because he's worked through a lot of this stuff, but it's funny because we started playing tennis together and I played more than him, but like all of the mistakes that he makes in his tennis game are because he learned them from me. So he's like a sponge. Mm -hmm. So anyway, to answer your question, though, there are lots of ways that it can manifest. It's not just people pleasing perfectionism. For me, I'm traditionally a performer, so I have, you know, the way that I have throughout my life wanted to feel like I fit in, wanted to feel like I was loved, wanted to feel worthy, Mm -hmm. was to achieve or to be the most entertaining in the room or to win a lot of awards. So I don't show up as a necessarily a people pleaser in this sort of traditional way that you might think about it. And that by the way, is what I would call in my quiz, a helper. Mm-hmm. It's someone who mm-hmm. really is trying to make themselves useful or never says no so that she or he can feel like they're wanted, like they're needed
0: yeah oh my gosh yeah and you explained I know you and I have talked about this before we are very similar in our personalities and that's how I am too I think it's interesting like what you call the hater sounds Mm -hmm. very similar to what I call like the zero fucks mentality and in my new book I'm writing an entire chapter on that and I see that a lot I mean we see those memes you know about like how to be like withable. and -hmm. and, I can you know and I get where it's coming from it's like yeah I can like you know fist pump to that but I think that what happens is it becomes very black or white. You know, people see it only in as like, I'm either a doormat or I'm like this badass who doesn't take from anybody, you know, but you're still isolating. Right, right,
1: right. You're creating what you fear Mm -hmm. because deep down, that's what we want is we want connection. We want to feel a sense of belonging. This is what we crave and it's very primal to us. But the problem is that we put up these Facades, You know, like for me, that facade of being like the smartest, most competent person in the room and really devoting my life to that. Mm -hmm. And what happens is then we surround ourselves with people who are having a relationship with the facade of us. And so we're not experiencing the true belonging. We never get that urge satisfied. And by the way, this is why I think that so many of us self-medicate with alcohol or
0: other Mm -hmm. substances. It's just that feeling. Yes. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And I love talking about this because I think it's so prevalent. And I think sometimes people hear the word people pleaser and they can't, I think a lot of people do identify as one, but then there's a lot of people who don't, no, and they yeah. still really care about what other people think. So I think yeah. that you can be, have issues with approval, but not be a people pleaser right. for sure. Right. yeah okay so you mentioned the word you know feeling like a fraud so what does that mean to you and how do you talk about that with your audience
1: well so i think that there are different kinds of feeling like a fraud i think there are different reasons i should say one i mentioned before which is i say this with love but a lot of us do feel like a fraud because we are acting like a fraud i mean i have a story in my own life to kind of illustrate that but When my mom was going through her treatments for cancer, I had been to every single one of her treatments except for the day when I needed to finish this report. I was writing a report on the home mortgage interest rate deduction for a progressive think tank. And I really wanted to work for this think tank because I was on, I was just, my thing was that I wanted people to see me as really, really smart. And I thought, well, if I could be, a research analyst for a think tank, I mean, and write reports for the Oregon legislator, then that would be it. That That sounds fancy. Yeah, that's really fancy. And I would prove to them for once and for all, really to myself, But so this report was due and the entire time that I was working for this organization, I mean, I felt like such a fraud because these were real policy wonks and I was pretending. And so it did. It felt like I was swimming upstream and I was taking a long time to finish this report and I really cared what they thought of me. And so The very final day that my mom, well, it wasn't the final, I'll say more. But on the day that my mom had this treatment, I was supposed to finish this report. And so I remembered the conversation with her on the phone where I told her I couldn't make it that day. And I did end up finishing the report. That night, my dad found her in bed and she wasn't breathing. And long story short, she she died of heart failure. And this is why I say that the stakes are so high because we don't even get that we are creating this life. And in the process, we're missing things that are important to us. And so that's the kind of fraud where it's like you feel like you have to be someone else in your life and you feel like you're constantly swimming upstream because you are. You're not being who you really are. For whatever reason, it's because you picked up on messages that the real you wasn't fit for human consumption. But that's one kind of fraud. Now, there's another kind of fraud that has more to do with sort of culturally, especially with women, we are not taught What it takes to really be successful in our life. It really does take discomfort. And for those of us with issues around addiction, we're used to creating comfort. We want everything to be comfortable in our lives. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to make any waves. We don't want anyone pissed off at us. We don't want to deal with that. And so we're so used to finding comfort, creating comfort, that anything that requires us to be successful doing our own thing requires us to get out of that comfort zone and to step up in a way that requires us to risk requires us to fail, requires yeah. us to go out into places where we can't control and we, we can't predict the outcome. That's another area where like I can share in my own life when I was invited to train for on behalf of Martha Beck's life coach training certification program. And all I wanted to do was say no. I wanted to say no so badly because I was Terrified, And I remember the first day that I showed up as an instructor to teach these life coach cadets, training cadets, the tools. I felt like I was going to throw up like the entire time. Mm-hmm. And that's just normal. But a lot of times we don't get that because we think there's something wrong with us if we feel that way. And so there are two different kinds of feeling like a fraud. And a lot of the class that I share is learning how to distinguish those Because there's different things that you do depending on what kind of fraud it is. Oh,
0: my gosh. Yes. I think I hear that a lot. You know, I'm gathering stories from my book and I hear from these women like I just I have all these I have so much experience and credentials and college degrees and certifications, but yeah, I still walk into work and feel like a fraud. I feel like I'm doing it wrong. I feel like one day everyone's just going to find out that I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. I see with my clients too. And so you have like a free workshop, right? Yeah. That people can attend. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a fraud. It's at I feel like a fraud.com forward slash Andrea and people can sign up for that for free and tell us what, so what will people learn in this workshop? So we're going to talk about those two kinds of feeling like a
1: fraud. I'm going to help you distinguish between them. A lot of the class does draw upon sort of this legacy that we have inherited as a culture, women, about sort of feeling, why do we feel like, like, why is this so common with women? So I address that. I speak to that. The cultural legacy around that. And then we talk about those two kinds of feeling like a fraud. I will help folks to distinguish between those. And I will help people to understand what their next steps need to be depending on what's showing up for them, how, what kind of feeling like
0: a fraud is showing up for them. Oh, that's great. Cause we, you and I could talk for like a whole hour on that. We are going to move yeah. on from the topic. So if anyone's like, Oh my God, please talk about that more. Go to, IFeellikeafraud.com feel forward slash Andrea. The link is in the show notes. If you want an easier link to click on, just hop on over to the show notes and thank you for putting that on for us. Oh yeah. Thank you. And all right. So we're shifting gears a little bit, everybody. And We're going to talk about, I'm kind of, you know, it's a little, here's a little preamble. (laughs) And this year marks my own five-year anniversary in sobriety. And I have asked a select number of colleagues and friends that I have to come on and share their story and talk about sobriety and recovery. And Amy is one of those. And I would love, even if you are someone who has not struggled with alcoholism, I would love for you to stick around and listen and either share this episode with someone that, you know that is struggling or you think that is struggling or you may even walk away with some nuggets of your own life again if you don't struggle with booze so as i was saying you're a sister in sobriety and recovery so Mm -hmm. would you share with the listeners your story specifically of when you realized you had a problem with drinking
1: yeah So it's been, let's see, almost, well, it'll be three years in November. And by the way, on the date of when we're recording this, today is my dad's birthday. And sober, sober birthday, sober birthday. And he has 37 years. Wow. So and my mom would have had 37 years today. So this is very cool that we're doing this on this day. But yeah, so it will be almost three years for me. So, I have been doing a lot of my own work. So, I've been at the, you know, I became a coach seven years ago and it has been a beautiful thing. There has been so much healing, but, you know, there is also the curse of self awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, God, you hazard. know, what I realized, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I'm on to my, I was on to myself for many years. But it was sort of like this: Do I have a problem? Sort of thing. And I was one of those who would like do the quizzes online and mm-hmm. talk to my friends. And you know, my sister, who's also has many, many years of sobriety, you know, she would tell me, you know, you don't have a problem. You like, you, you know, I see how you drink. Like, you're fine. You don't have a problem. And so, of course, I like to drink. So I would. It was much more convenient for me to just believe, you yeah. know, my sister or my
0: friends or the quiz. So what were we you drinks? doing? Were you like going out partying, or were you? What did it look like? So I have
1: three kids and they're twins. I have twins who are eight and I have a five-year-old and I am not like someone who goes out and parties anymore. But for me, being someone who is highly sensitive and empathic, it was just a lot of stimulation and also very introverted to have all this energy in my house and have all these people need me and have all this emoting everywhere.
0: <laughs> so at that time, I'm thinking back, you know, years ago, they were much littler, Yep. And you were yep. taking, you know, they were in diapers and you were, it was a lot more like physical caregiving.
1: Yeah. It was really, really, really hard. And so the alcohol for me, was this way for me to dull my senses, really, and to, Mm -hmm. I can't remember where I read this, but pull the blinds down. And it just started to get, you know, it started to become a glass of wine, you know, every so often to a glass of wine every night, and then two glasses of wine, and then three glasses of wine. And then I started to think about having wine around two o'clock. And it just, you know, and being self-aware, I just, started to see. And, you know, also just having grown up in a household with, you know, the traditional sort of ugly drunks, (laughs) it was something that I was, I did not want it to get To that point, and so you know, I didn't look like the stereotypical drunk on the street corner, but I also knew how I knew that this was progressing. Mm. And you know, there was this one experience where I remember I was at a park with a friend at an event, and we were going to have a picnic, and the kids were with us, and the park was being this event. Traditionally, we would drink wine. This year, like there were people patrolling. I don't know if it were, I don't know, law enforcement or something saying we couldn't drink wine. And I was so disappointed. I was like, no way. I'm not going to have any fun. I have to drink the wine. And so I just
0: kind of snuck the wine while those guys weren't looking and got pretty intoxicated. (laughs) pretty. So so you were drinking by yourself, like in secret at the party?
1: Well, I, you know, my friend and I were in on it, you Mm -hmm. know, but I drank and hid it from, you know, the folks that were, you know, telling us we weren't supposed to. And then I got pretty darn drunk. I remember my friend was asking me if I was okay to drive home because I had to drive the kids home. We had to cross the river. And Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I'm fine. I just didn't want the inconvenience of having to deal with, you know, having to what, like get a ride or take a cab or I had three kids. So I told her I was fine, but I really wasn't. And I was driving over bridges of bodies of water. And I remember it wasn't the next night or anything. It really was probably about a month or two after when I remembered that day, that night. And I thought to myself, you know, if anything would have happened. This is going to make me cry. Mm -hmm. I would have never forget. I mean, I would have never forgiven myself. And I know that I would have vowed never to have another drink again. And so I just became that person. I just decided that I wasn't going to wait until something happened. I was just going to, I was making that vow to that alternative reality where I did get in an accident. I did drive my car over the bridge. I killed my children. I just, I became that person and made a decision that I wasn't going to wait and I was just going to vow never to drink again. And so that was the decision that I made. That was really, this is actually the first time I've shared this story. I've written about it. I've never published it. I wrote about it once, but I never published it. So it'll be in the book. But So that was really what I think was the thing that kind of made me decide to stop for good.
0: Wow. I just thank you for sharing that story. And I just, when you were telling it, I just had this, this pit in my stomach and I, I can so relate to so many things you said and just starting with, you know, finding out that you can't drink at that picnic. I mean, for me, I remember so, looking forward to events where you could like day drink and it was socially acceptable. Yeah. You know, things like Super Bowl parties or yeah. like parades or, you know, like yeah. anybody's birthday party or holidays, like Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas, forget about it. Like, oh, you yeah. can start drinking at noon. I want that to be my everyday and, you know, and have nobody raise an eyebrow. That's what I wanted every day. And so, yeah. and just, I think that, you know, for anyone listening and what you said in that awareness piece and how you said, I forget what you said about, Oh, you said you knew that it was progressive. And I think, you know, for those people that don't have never heard that before is whether you can get on board with the term alcoholic, which I know is really hard for people. It's still even hard for me. I think whatever you want to call it, whatever this is that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. we don't get better. And I think that all of, I think anyone that I have on this podcast, anyone that I've talked to who's in recovery, who's quit drinking, can tell you that we tried to get better. Don't, wouldn't you say that you tried? If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama
1: podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. yeah i remember actually once my husband has some digestive issues and he had an attack and he decided he wasn't going to drink and so in solidarity i just stopped drinking for a month and i could do it and then i remember so we went out to dinner a month later and i decided okay i was just going to have a glass of wine and i did and that night it was like oh this is no big deal like this didn't have the like I just thought it would have some charge or something, and I was like, "Oh, look at me! I'm normal." And mm-hmm. then, <laughs> you know how this is gonna go. Well, I know how it's gonna end up. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like the next night, I was like, "Oh, I'm just gonna get some wine." And then, I, you know what was what was amazing was how fast it started to go downhill yes. like it was like my drinking like multiplied by 10 times like the intensity that it had before I stopped for a month that was really eye-opening for me
0: yes to everything you just said I remember for me I went to a super Bowl party and again it was just like my invitation to just get completely faced. And Mm -hmm. my kids were little, I was even still nursing my daughter and, you know, while drinking, Mm -hmm. I'd like to say I was, you know, what did did they call it? Pump and dump. But I, I didn't, (laughs) which I have, I still struggle with from a place of having tremendous amounts of shame around. So we're at the Super Bowl party and I probably, and it was my friend, with, that was hosting at Her family's Italian and not that all Italians do this, but they drink a lot of wine, really good wine. And I probably threw down two bottles that day. We went home and I was just completely tanked and burst into tears that night and told my husband that I was pretty sure I needed to get sober. And it was completely for him. It was completely out of left field because mm. he wasn't totally aware of how much I was drinking. Cause at that point I was hiding it from him. Mm. And then I called my friend Courtney who had like at that time, like 10 years of sobriety and told her and thought she thought it was going to be really dramatic and it wasn't. And so she said, well, just quit for 30 days and like, see what happens. Like mostly. And as a coach, you know, this, it's not really about the action. It's about like what happens like with our thoughts and our feelings mm-hmm. during the, the yeah. homework. And I made it six days and was mm-hmm. just like, climbing the walls, like yes. white knuckling it, just like, fuck this, I can drink, I can, you know, moderate using air quotes. Mm-hmm. And then it was really similar to what you just said. I remember then when I, my six, you know, I, tr- my 30 day trial didn't work out. My mm-hmm. husband went out. Of, this is when we were about to leave San Diego and we were going to move. And he went out of town for like, I don't remember maybe a week or 10 days. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever bought myself a box of wine. And it was like party time for Andrea (laughs) because he was gone. He didn't travel when we lived in San Diego. He didn't travel for work, but you know, he was gone for the first time. I didn't have to have, you know, I was making up that he was watching how much I was drinking. I don't think he really was. He says he wasn't. And I, got drunk every night by myself. You know, I was with two small children. Like what would have happened if I needed to take one of them to the hospital or, you right. know, I was just getting completely tanked every night. And it just, it was like you were saying, it's just the escalation was yeah. frightening. It was yeah. frightening how fast it was happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing with me too, like there are so many reasons why it was so difficult for me to identify that I had a problem. I think inside I knew, but, you know, just how much we see of, you know, socially, you know, socially, how it's happening all the time around us. And I just had such a hard time accepting that I could have a problem because I just didn't seem like I had a, I just didn't seem like what I was seeing culturally that was being defined as having a problem or what I have even experienced in my own household Mm -hmm. with my family. And, you know, the way I drank, like I just didn't, I didn't get tanked. I just wanted to like, have a nice buzz like mm-hmm. all day long. And that too. Like it's like I wasn't out of control. I didn't black out. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't throw up. Like I didn't like to be that uncomfortable. Like I just wanted to be buzz pretty much all the time. And so like that's but you know it's funny is like now I look back at it. I look back at the way I thought, the what you know, the way I was and I have no doubt in my mind that I had a problem and life is so much better now. I am so happy that I did that. I just wanted to share that because I think for people listening, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who are like, oh, you know, is this a problem? And deep down, you probably know it is, but it's really, really hard in our society. So, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: it might not look like how you see it on TV or what you're seeing on the street. Exactly. And I think, you know, for me, most of my nights were like you were explaining. It was like I just wanted to keep that same buzz. And what I was noticing for me was that it took more alcohol for me to get that buzz I and that then us. I, as the late, as the night wore on, I would like kind of reach this point where I would just keep drinking and you know, some nights I would get kind of drunk. And it was at that point, like everybody was already in bed, but most nights it was just like you were saying, like, it was just this very heavy buzz. And for me, it was like, I just wanted to check out. Like I just wanted yeah. like a mini vacation. That's how I yeah. felt. Yeah. I couldn't be with, like, I have very similar feelings to what you were saying is like, I was so overstimulated. I was a little bit bored, you know, just like so many things dropped up in my identity. And like, I mean, old triggers from old stuff. I just did not, I couldn't deal with life. Yeah, (laughs) I couldn't. It was just too hard. All of it. All of it was too much for me. So thank you for sharing your story. I appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners do too. So let's move and talk about recovery. I'm sure so many people have heard me say, I think that sobriety and recovery are two very different things. I think Mm -hmm. that you can get sober, but recovery is something else. So what does recovery look like for you? So for me, you know, recovery looks
1: like being able to be in my body and be with myself and not need anybody's approval, a glass of wine, you know, like to feel like I look great. Like there's all I think it's not just the booze. Like it's for me it's like it's being it's like we call it satnam in kundalini, it's like this connection with yourself. And, you know, for me, that's what it's really about. And so, you know, like just recently, I just finished, we kind of talked about how I've been making a lot of changes in my life, and really letting go of some things that were really deeply attached to my identity. And it was a really difficult process for me to let those things go. But what I realized is that there are things in our lives that we tolerate, and then we don't realize that we're tolerating them, but we use outside substances to do it, like to get us through. And for me, it wasn't booze, but it was like shopping. It was buying Mm -hmm. things. And I really noticed it. I was aware and I was like, wow, you know, these are really cute outfits, but why am I so obsessed with when the amazon.com box is coming? And so, you know, what it really took for me was to make those difficult decisions to make those changes that are in line with who I really am and to face that. And it's difficult, but now I'm sitting here feeling so peaceful, so happy, so ready to wake up. My husband was just like, just this morning. He's like, wow, you're not sleeping as much as you used to. Like what's going on with you? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what it is for me. This is what, that's what this means. This change means is being able to get, Connected with yourself and to listen to yourself and to not just tolerate and get through your life, but to have a relationship with yourself in a way that allows you to feel heard, to appreciate yourself, to know yourself so that you don't need those things outside of yourself to feel worthy, to feel like you deserve to exist.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And I wonder, though, for a lot of people listening who, you know, this might be a wake up call for them or or maybe they even have recently got sober. I think it's a different story for you and I who do this work for a living and who are immersed in it. But for someone who's not, what kind of advice can you give for somebody who wants to quit drinking? Like we all know that there is. 12-step programs that are free that you can look up in your area and go to. And that's how I stayed sober for the first couple of years in my life. And I think it looked a little bit different for you. Can you tell the listeners what advice would you give for somebody who's trying to get sober and stay sober?
1: I think that a big part of it has to do with support. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, so, you know, for me, like the biggest thing that set me on the path to sobriety was really when I was able to talk to other people. And I remember really the first conversation I had about this was with you, Andrea. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was like, I talked to my dad, you know, and that was a big deal like Mm -hmm. to tell my dad and then, you know, being able to not be sort of quiet and not be secretive about it and find a community. And, you know, for me, the thing I think that is really difficult is that when we're drinking, we create a life around that. We have friends around that. We have activities around that. And, you know, so, and again, you know, my work really has to do with us needing that, needing that belonging. Right. And so what's really difficult because this is such a primal need for us is when we change our behavior that dramatically and those relationships no longer work the same way, you know, those social activities no longer work or look the same. And so I think this is one of the, This is huge for people. And so what you have to understand is that you really, whether it's AA or whether it's something else, you have to create a network of support. You have to, you can't like do this in secret. Um, You have to find people who are going to support you. And so for me, I didn't go to a lot of the traditional AA meetings, although I do occasionally, but, you know, finding community for me looked like finding, you know, Tommy Rosen was great with, and I love his work and he talks about recovery and he does talk about 12 steps, but he also talks about Yoga And that really appeals to me. And so I did a lot of his events and I do online meetings. But, you know, it's also just having relationships with people like you and and people like my dad or others who understand or even if they don't understand it completely, you know, you can connect. You can tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's really about understanding that your life is going to change. You know, I did lose friends. I don't have the same kinds of activities that I did before, but it's gotten so much better.
0: Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And I, I think just, I really want to underscore that you can't do it by yourself. You can certainly try. And I think that that's one of those things that if you are adamant about trying, then please go for it. I think some of us need to learn lessons the hard way. I'm one of those yeah. people, but I think that if you do try by yourself and it ends up not working out, I just want you to not think that something's wrong with you. I think yeah. this road is not meant to be done alone. And I think if nothing else, like 12 step meetings, you can find people who will listen to your story and they'll get it. Yeah. I think like yeah. there's nothing better than going to a recovery meeting and telling your story and seeing like people's heads nod where yeah. if you were to tell that story to like your partner who drinks normally, yeah, they don't get it. And yeah. that was hard for me in early recovery because I wanted my husband to get it so badly and he didn't. And then it finally dawned on me, it's not his job. Yeah. And it also dawned on me that the only reason he would totally get it is if he was an addict and mm-hmm. I don't want him to be. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's enough that I am and you're trying to navigate that. <laughs> but for some miracle, he's not. And I think that The relationships that I forged in early recovery saved my ass. And I just, I am eternally grateful for them. So what I'm going to do is in the show notes, if anyone is really struggling, and I know that there are some people who say, I just cannot maybe you're a prominent figure in your community and you just can't do it. There are some online options that I put in the show notes that I have found really helpful. There's actually a Facebook group that I've sent some clients to where you can meet this, mostly other women where you can meet other women and tell your story and just and get some, some support. Cause yeah, I think that I don't know if this was the case for you, but when I first called Courtney, even though I knew she had a lot of recovery, I was so afraid that she was going to like gasp. And be like, you know, like you, yeah. And I I don't know if you felt that way, like coming to me about your story, but like it was so nice to just totally be like, okay, totally. Totally. I did not want to,
1: like, I didn't want to come to (laughs) you. But you know, that's the thing. Like, it's that's the scary action, right? That I talked about. Like, when it comes to getting out of your discomfort zone, like to be successful in whatever way, like however you define it. It's like, it really does mean that you have to do scary stuff. And for me, like talking to you was so vulnerable. It was Mm -hmm. so vulnerable and it was really important. And I'm really glad that I did. I can't control that. I can't, I didn't want you to think I looked weak. I don't want you to Mm -hmm. think, I don't know. I just didn't want to have you, see me in this way.
0: Yeah. I hear that. And I, it's interesting. It, it's such, you know, everyone knows I love Brene's work and facilitate her work. And yeah. this is really like the definition of vulnerability is that we walk into these quote unquote arenas of vulnerability and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And we are so afraid of being rejected of mm-hmm. being, we all have these fears of how we're going to be perceived by others. You know, speaking of approval addiction, we're coming full yeah. a circle here, but what's interesting is that I was honored to hear your story. I was absolutely 100% honored and grateful that you came to me, that you trusted me enough to Mm -hmm. hear such just a story that came from your heart and you were suffering and that I could help you and hold the space to, to support you. So Mm -hmm. that's really, and not to say like, we're not telling people like, just go run out and tell like your hairdresser about it. It has to be someone that has earned the right to hear your story. And that's where these online groups can be helpful and especially recovery meetings. Yeah. 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 All right. So we will put those in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. And I just really appreciate you and the work that you do in the world.
1: Likewise, Andrea. And
0: it is an honor. Thank you. So for those of you that do want to attend that the workshop that Amy is putting on, it's fraud.com forward slash Andrea. And again, all of that's in the show notes. And I will have resources for recovery in the show notes. And until next time, Ask Kickers, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.